several decades ago when, when I was um, first uh, becoming when I was first becoming a Christian, um, I was in a Bible study with another group of people, and um, what, the, the person who was leading that particular study that day was a man named Mike Lamb. And he said, we, we were looking at Romans chapter 8, and he commented that this is the chapter that your Bible should fall open to naturally. If you just flip it like this, then it should fall open. Mine doesn't, I'm sorry to say, but, but I think he, there's, there's a lot to, uh, to agree with in what he had to say that, um, if I was to pick a favorite chapter in the, in the scriptures, I might go along with him and pick Romans chapter 8, and it has been a long, a long journey to get here, but we have finally arrived. So, so what's so special about Romans chapter 8? Well, um, if you've been tracking with us as we've gone through the first several chapters of uh, Romans, um, uh, we've seen that Paul has has talked about the problem that the human condition is that we are in in our in our natural state we are subject to sin. That for Paul, sin is not something you do. Sin is a is is the thing that makes you do it. That sin is the the force, the the personified force of sin is like a slave master who who requires us to do the things that we don't want to do. So so that's the way Paul sees um oh my. Thanks for the confirmation. Um so um that's the way Paul sees the uh the the problem of humanity is that we are beset with sin. And um if 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 um, if you remember, he began by telling us that this is this is a universal problem. It happens to people who are not believers, uh, but it also happens to people who are believers. That that the fact that you you know grew up in the church or your your you know grandparents you know paid for the windows or whatever it was, none none of that matters. Your pedigree doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter what you personally believe. Um, you are subject to sin in your natural state. So. So that's where he began. But then he said, um, nevertheless, God has set us right with him, not because of our our own abilities to resist sin, to, to do what is right, but because of what Jesus did for us. So so that's that's what he talked about in the first several chapters. And then in chapter 6, he said, so stop sinning. And um, he kind of let us uh, think about that for a chapter. And then in chapter 7, he said, well, it's not really all that easy, is it? So, um, so he said, even, even if Jesus has set us right with God, um, how do we, how do we stop sinning? And his answer is going to be the Holy Spirit. He's going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. In fact, in this chapter, he talks, he said, he mentions the Holy Spirit 21 times. In 39 verses, Paul, uh, mentions the Holy Spirit 21 times. And in the, the section we're going to look at today, he mentions the Holy Spirit 10 times. So, uh, this is the chapter um, that, that's more than the rest of the entire book of Romans or um, really a lot of what Paul writes about is this is the place where he really focuses uh, especially on the Holy Spirit. And the reason he does that is the question he left us with last time, the question that he uh, asked us to consider or to to relate to is from chapter seven. He said, um, I'm a miserable human being. Who will deliver me from this dead corpse? Who will deliver me from the the thing in my in in my um, in my life in my psyche? Who will who will deliver me from the thing that keeps telling me to do the sins? That the thing that pays attention to sin, the part of me that 
goes on wanting to sin out of fear of sin. He says, um, who will deliver me? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. And this makes sense. Jesus told us that, that he would send us a helper who would do this. Um, I will ask the Father, as I mentioned to the children, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. So that's that's the big answer. The big answer is the Holy Spirit, and that's what Paul is going to talk about all through this chapter. But what we're going to look at uh, in today's today's reading is some of the ways that actually happens. How does the Holy Spirit help us? I mean, it's great. Jesus says, I'll send you a helper. But how how does that actually take place? What does the Holy Spirit do to help us? What does that look like in our lives? How does the Holy Spirit deliver us from this dead corpse? So, we are reading, starting at chapter uh, chapter 8, but starting at verse 9. He says, you are not self-centered. Instead, you are in the Spirit, if in fact God's Spirit lives in you. So, um, the, the word self-centered here, he's... Um, uh, for Paul, this, this gets back to what we saw in chapter uh, 7. He says that there's these two parts of us. There's, there's the, the natural self. The, the part of us that, that is subject to sin. And he said, because of the way that Christ um, uh, set us right with God, um, the way he did that was by dying on the cross. And as a part of that, uh, because, because we share the same humanity as Christ, when Christ died for us, we share in his death. Then in the same way we share in Adam's sin, we share in Christ's death. So, so that part of us is dead. But sin keeps working through it. So when he talks about being self-centered or being selfish, he means that thing, the natural self. He says, instead, you are in the Spirit, if in fact God's Spirit lives in you. So so he's saying, if, if God's Spirit lives in you, then you aren't limited to just that natural self. There is, there is the Spirit of God living in you who has uh, given you a new birth. You are a new creature because of the Spirit working in you. So he says that um, that um, everyone has the Spirit in them. Everyone who, who has trust in Jesus has the Spirit living in him. And the language he's using here would have been very familiar to people in the first century because this is temple language. They would have said, okay, the, the, the God, the deity, whoever it is that I'm venerating, um, lives in a temple. And uh, that would have included Jews. They would have said that the, the temple in Jerusalem would have been the place where God actually connects with earth. So uh, this language here that, that you have the spirit living in you, he's saying that this is something that is true of believers, that collectively the body of Christ makes up the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that everybody is a part of that. Uh, in another letter, uh, the Apostle Peter says, we're like living stones that are collectively assembled into that temple. So he says, everybody in the church, everybody who is a, who, who is a, a follower of Jesus um, has the Holy Spirit living in them. They're part of that temple. And he goes on, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. What he means here is that if they're not a Christian, then maybe someday they will be, but, but right now they're not, they're not who we're talking about. We're not talking about them, we're talking about you. And the reason he's doing this is because um, this would have been, a, again, something in the first century. There were a lot of mystery religions where you ascended a pyramid. 
that you came in on the ground floor and then you learned, you know, the basic secrets of the religion and then you learned, you know, you went to level two and level three. You got holier and holier the more time you spent, the more you learned, the more you contributed to that temple. You became holier and holier. And Paul says, no, no, no. If, if you're lacking the spirit, then you don't belong to Jesus. You know, you, that you're, there's only two categories, in or out. So he says, you know, you may know people and you may say, boy, they are so holy. You know, they pray like crazy. They, you know, they're, they're amazing Christians. And he says, he says, that may be, but they have, have the spirit no more than you do. That everybody has the spirit in the same degree. Um, in a different letter, Paul says there's different spiritual gifts. Different people have roles in the church. Uh, different people have walked longer in their Christian walk than others. But it's the same spirit. There's no distinction here. Everybody um, uh, is given the gift of the spirit equally. And then what the spirit uh, chooses to do in them and the way the spirit chooses to work in them is going to be different. But it's not like they are somehow, you know, they've ascended higher in the, in the, in the hierarchy and they have more holiness than you do. Paul's saying, no, this is universal. Everybody who is in Christ has the spirit. He says, there's only one spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. It's just the one God. It's not like 23 levels of God. So Paul says, that's that's the spirit. And no matter how miserable you may feel, no matter how much you want to be delivered from you know your particular dead corpse, Paul says, Paul says, you have access to the same spirit that the most holy and wonderful person you know or heard about has. So you have access to the same spirit. So the Holy Spirit lives in believers, including not just Billy Graham, not just Mother Teresa, but you and me. The spirit lives in you and me. So Paul continues. He says, if Christ is in you and Christ uh, uh, Christ is in you through his spirit, the spirit is your life. You have this new life. You've been born from above. You are a new creature because of God's righteousness. And the body is, um, uh, but the body, the body is dead because of sin. That's that dead corpse he was talking about. So he says, so think this through. Jesus isn't dead anymore. Jesus did die, but Jesus had been raised. So he says, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. And this is this is a, a first century concern. See, a lot of people in the first century, they would have said, good, the material world is icky, right? Bodies are icky. They're just, they're just you know, I long to, to ascend uh, from this mortal coil to a, a, an astral plane, I, I want to be um, a disembodied spirit. You know, I look forward. If I was a disembodied spirit, then I wouldn't have all these fleshly urges. You know, I wouldn't overeat. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know, have my um, uh, different addictions and so forth. I would be a better person if I could just leave this body behind. And Paul says, No, 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 not like that. No, no. I'm not talking about you know going up into space and being a Star Trek energy creature or something, right? No, I'm saying your future is an embodied future, but just a better future, a resurrected future, that that the problems with the body will be dealt with in God's time. 
So, um, so we're not getting rid of the, the body. You're not going to become a disembodied creature of some, some kind. You're going to be, continue to be a material creature because God likes material. God invented it. So, you know, that's not the problem. There's nothing wrong with matter. There's just a problem with sin. So, he says, you will be given life um, through your spirit that lives in you. So, the Holy Spirit guarantees your resurrection. The, the indwelling Holy Spirit living in you guarantees your resurrection. That you will not go off and become some, you know, whatever that would look like. Some disembodied, um, uh, immaterial being. So, no. He says, no. The future for all of us is an embodied future. Um, in one of his books, uh, C.S. Lewis um, imagines a conversation. He imagines uh, seeing a conversation between somebody who's on the verge of, of putting their trust in Jesus. They're, they're close, but they're not there yet. And in, in this, it, he's, he's watching what happens. And he says there's a, there's a little lizard on his ear who keeps telling him things that he, that he has to, I mean, on his ear, on his shoulder, who's telling him, oh no, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. And, and that's basically the way C.S. Lewis envisions that dead body. I mean, the dead body's kind of a gross thing, so he makes it kind of a contemptible lizard who's saying, no, you better go ahead and do this, you know, you wouldn't want to change, you know. And finally, what this guy does is he strangles the lizard. And the lizard becomes a giant winged horse, and he flies around on it. So this picture is is the body is transformed. So the resurrection is this picture of all the things you hate about that little lizard on your shoulder right now, because he's always he's always telling you you need to do this or that. It, he will become a, a, a winged horse that you can fly around on and and do things you never thought you could do. Because bodies are good. There's nothing wrong with the body. It's just what he's telling you, what the things he's whispering you in your ear. So, the Holy Spirit guarantees that resurrection. Whatever that actually looks like, I like that picture, but I don't know uh, what it would actually be like. So, Paul says, So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. So, he's been talking all through this, this book about the way that sin was a master, that before Jesus um, uh, died and rose, sin was our master. That ultimately, sin got the final word. Sin said, do this, and you might put up a little fight, but ultimately, you're sin's slave. And he says, so you're not obliged to sin anymore. Sin can, can issue you all the instructions at once, but you don't have to pay any attention to sin. You're not obliged to sin. Now, you do have an obligation, but it isn't that kind of obligation. It isn't an obligation... Um, to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. Remember, self is that that dead body. That we, we don't have to live on that basis anymore. We've got a whole new obligation. So he, he doesn't tell us what is that obligation. I mean, he's he's getting at it all through this whole chapter. But what is that obligation? Well, the, the obligation is, is essentially to be grateful. And I was trying to think of a picture for this. Um, imagine that you go off into the woods and you get lost, right? You're going to go hiking and, you know, you're going to go on a three-day hiking trip. And somewhere along the way, you got lost, you got turned around, and you're like three days overdue, and your family's all worried, and they called search and rescue, and, you know, the planes, and, you know, the whole thing, right? You, you've heard these stories, right? And finally, somebody from search and rescue locates you. And they say, okay, here's what you do, right? Go down the hill, and then go down the river until it forks, and then follow the left fork. And you're, you're saved, right? Everything's good from there, right? So... 
down the hill, river, left fork, you're good, right? Now, at that point, you have a choice. I mean, you know, it would be appropriate to say, thank you for finding me, right? But, but the, the key thing is you have a choice. Are you going to follow their instructions? Or are you going to say, yeah, thanks, I got it. You know, you know, thanks for the information, but I'm actually enjoying being lost here in the woods. You know, what do you do at that point? Do you say, you know what, I don't know you. I've never met you. How, how can I trust you? You know, so, so, so there's different responses you might have at that point. But he's saying, the obligation is to do the smart thing, to do the obvious thing, to follow the instructions. You know, go you know, down the hill, follow the river, turn left, right? So, so do that, right? So, he says that's, that's the obligation we have is just to do what is, what makes the most sense at that point. But he says it is an honest to goodness choice. He says, um, he says, if you live on the basis of selfishness, you're gonna die. Stay in the woods as long as you want, right? You know, eventually you will wish you hadn't, right? If you stay in the woods, if you, if you fail to, to do the thing that presents itself to you, but it is a real option. It's, you're not a slave anymore. It's a real option. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. This is why C.S. Lewis had that idea of strangling the lizard. That, that there's this idea of, um, that, Putting to death the, 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 the things of the body that, that at some point you just have to say, you know, we, we have this as a saying, right? You're dead to me, right? Somebody can abuse your trust so many times that, that you're just kind of like, look, you're living rent free in my head. I've just got to do something about this. And so, you know, culturally we say you're dead to me. We don't mean you're going to go kill them, but we mean you just have to say, I'm done with you, right? Because, you know, until something else changes, you know, I can forgive you in my heart, but I can't have you in my life, right? You're just, you're just a mess. And, you know, every time, you know, you're here, you have, you, you make me do things that I don't want to do. So he says, put to death the actions of the body with the spirit you will live. So how do, how does that happen? Well, if you think back to that, that picture of, of the search and rescue person, right? The, they, they reorient you and then they maybe help you, you know, maybe, you know, you, You've uh, twisted your ankle, and they might help you get down to the the base of the hill or something like that. So they will give you some help to do that. So how do you put to death the the deeds of the body? Well, uh, the Holy Spirit helps you perceive and turn from sin. It helps you to say, you know, no, they're not on your side. You know that that person who's saying, let's go out tonight, let's do the thing, let's go see her again, right? That that is not your friend. So it helps you perceive that that is actually the, the selfish part. The, the old self is whispering things to you. So to perceive it and then to turn from it, to actually say, all right, I can't, but with your help I can. To say, all right, I've never succeeded in the past, but maybe this time I actually can because the Holy Spirit helps me turn from sin. So, um, so if by the Spirit... Not in your own strength, but by the Spirit, you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. So, he goes on, he says, all who, <clears throat> all who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. Paul says that, um, that, this is not a new slave master. This is not, 
you're, you know, you're not meet the old boss, same, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Paul is saying, this is, this is a different situation. If you're up in the woods, the search and rescue person says, go this way, um, and you say, you know, I'm too embarrassed. Um, you know, I feel mortified that everybody is out looking for me right now, you know, because of my own stupidity or whatever. Um, if there's some reason you might say, well, I don't want to go back. I, I'm ashamed to go back. I would be terrible to go back. He, he says, he says, it's different. You're not going back to the plantation. You're not going back to be a slave, right? You're not going to be treated like a runaway slave. You're going back to your family. You're going back to your family and Everybody's waiting for you. Paul says it's a whole different situation that you are included in the family of the children of God. He says, with the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. So the idea here is that the Spirit um, agrees with our spirit that we're God's children. If if we've ever said, you know, you're trying to pray uh, uh, our Father, and you go, yeah, but really, you know, that would be great if... But I'm not so sure, you know, because of what I've done or, you know, because of the, the, the tapes that are playing in my head. If there's something in us that says, yeah, not, not really. He says the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit because the Spirit will reassure you. More than that, the Spirit will help make up the deficit. If you like, if you believe that God is your Father at like a 75% level, the Spirit will help you close that gap. So he says the Spirit testifies with our Spirit, agrees with our Spirit that we are God's children. So listen to the Spirit who says, Actually, you are. You really are a child of God. So, it is the Holy Spirit who includes us in the family of God's children. So, so one of the ways that the Holy Spirit saves us or, or helps us in that situation is by giving us instructions and pointing us in the right direction and persuading us that even though it might be embarrassing, they're waiting for us. They're your family. They love you. They'll, they'll be so happy to have you back. So, that's one way. But now he says... But there's another way. There's another way. He says, if we are children, we are also heirs. We're also heirs. Now, you know, for us, the way you become an heir is somebody dies and they, you know, invite you. You get a letter from the lawyer or whatever, and you find out what you inherited. He's not talking about that. He's saying, he's saying you have been adopted into a very, very wealthy family, right? And, you know, God's never going to die. That's not the issue. But... You know, you now have access to God's resources. That all of God's resources are available to you because you're a member of the family. You know, think of you know a trust fund baby or something. You know, I, I've got access to the wealth of God, the the I, the inheritance. He says in later on in the same chapter, he says, if God is for us, who is against us? He gave us His own Son. Is there anything else that He won't also give us freely? That you know, what more? Evidence could you want that you are actually included in the will? You know what? What more evidence could you could you have that you know the you know Jeff Bezos adopts you, gives you a black credit card made out of you know titanium or something, right? And you put it in your pocket and never use it. You know why would you do that, right? Run out and see what the credit limit is, right? I mean, right? That's that's what he's saying. He's saying. If God is for us, what else would he withhold, right? He says, we are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. You know, get that credit card out of your wallet and start spending, right? 
you know, this is what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit gives us the ability to draw on all of God's resources. So we are part of the family. We, we get the family credit card. But he says, if we suffer with him, so we can also be glorified with him. So, what does he mean by that? Well, I mean, he may mean genuine suffering. There's, there's places in the world today, and there have always been places in the world, where the church is persecuted. You know, they persecuted Jesus, and they persecuted a lot of Christians since then. So, that may be what he's talking about. At the time he was writing this letter, there wasn't any overt um, persecution going on in Rome that we know about. Um, but there would have been ostracism, you know, there would have been people in their families who said, well, if you're going to go that way, you know, you're dead to me, right? They would have been ridden out of the will. They would have, they would have been told, you know, I can't have anything to do with you. If you're not going to come to the, the festival of Mars, you know, you know, I'm not going to, um, be adjacent to somebody who doesn't go to the festival of Mars. And they would have maybe been suffering just kind of social, social problems. Um, and maybe what he's talking about is just, hey, you're going to have a lizard whispering in your ear, right? You know, and you're going to have to keep putting that thing to death. You're going to have to keep saying, no, no, you're dead to me. I don't pick up the phone when you call. When I see those numbers, right? No, you're dead to me. So maybe he's just talking about that kind of suffering. I hate when this phone call arrives. I hate getting a text from this lizard. I don't want to deal with the body. So whatever it is he's talking about, he's, he's talking about some kind of suffering. If we really suffer with him, we are already suffering to some degree, but I mean, obviously, it could be worse. If we suffer with him, we can also be glorified. What does he mean by glorified? So, so glorified means to regain the status that God intended for people. God intended people to to till and keep the garden. That was the original intention God had. And he says, we will regain that position. We will be um, the, 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 um, the mirrors in creation that reflect God's goodness into it. We're made in God's image. And we will resume that role in the, in the, in the age to come. We will have that kind of glory. But in the meantime, in the meantime, as a down payment on that, we will experience the power of the Spirit living in us. We will have that kind of glory. We will have the ability to ignore the lizard. So, two more things the Holy Spirit does. He provides context for your suffering. Context, what does that mean? It means it's temporary, right? I mean, if nothing else, you know, it's happening because you live in Rome and there's a bad emperor, or it's happening because you have a, a, a dead body who's who sin lives in and it continues to um, to whisper to you. However that lo- suffering is, it's, it's contextual, and every context is temporary. So he provides context to your suffering, and then he confirms your inheritance of glory, that as the Holy Spirit works in you, as you, as you uh, go down the hill and head up the river, you get closer and closer, and you see people off in the distance, you get more and more confidence that he's actually put you on the right path. That as you continue your your walk as a Christian, you begin to believe, actually, I do have the power of Christ working in me. That that magic credit card is actually helping me to put to death the deeds of the body. So the Holy Spirit confirms our inheritance of glory. This is really what the church is called to do. The church is, is not called to know about Jesus. The church is called 
to demonstrate Jesus, to walk in the light of the Spirit, to walk in the power of the Spirit, to show the people in our lives and the people around us that God is actually faithful, that that it's not pie in the sky. Yes, someday, you know, Jesus will return and there will be a resurrection and all things will be renewed and that will be wonderful. It's not just that. That God, that's a promise from God, but God wants us to demonstrate it in the meantime. God wants us to demonstrate it through our lives so people can put their trust in Him. So this is the calling of the church. That God is not, you know, a credit card you keep in your wallet. God is offering you all of His, the inheritance of all of His wealth so that you can actually demonstrate that God has set you right and that God has conquered sin in your life and you are a new creature. Let's be those new creatures. Let's be that living temple. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, Paul has analyzed our condition. He tells us that we have been set right with you, and yet we continually are challenged by the temptation to sin. But you have given us a helper. Jesus asked and you sent us your Holy Spirit to live in us and to help us in all the ways that Paul articulates here and elsewhere in this magnificent chapter. Lord, I pray for um, each of us that we would uh, be confident of your grace and that you would give us the ability to perceive the Holy Spirit working in us so that we may have more and more confidence in his leadership. All these things, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.